Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. We all know that whilst in polite company, one is to refrain from talking about certain touchy or taboo subjects, especially if it creates disagreements. Topics such as religion, politics, sports, and sex. But as we also know, nobody cares. In fact, I'd say that nobody is caring harder than nobody has cared ever before, at least in what we'd consider modern history. So if you can't beat them, join them. But, as always, we'll join them differently and beat them on a whole different level. On today's episode, all the way from Ireland, we'll get a visit from our Aunt Flo, then we'll be controversially proud of our lack of pride, and finally we'll bury our toes firmly in the shifting sands. So get your pad ready, put your crayons away, you shan't be needing those, and make sure you know exactly what you believe, except for when you don't. And at this point, I'm tempted to say, let's get it on, but that would probably be going too far, so just here we go. I wake up like most people in the morning, in a cold sweat, screaming at the top of my lungs, and from there I figure my day will generally go the standard way for me. On a weekday, it'll be a mad dash to get ready, get the dog out to go potty, grab my backpack, and try to make it into work at a reasonable enough time to not be fired on the spot. On Saturday, it's usually late morning because I once again stayed up way too late the night before, And then I waste too much time doing literally nothing so I can regret my life choices as the day quickly wanes. I'm sure you can relate. Part of my morning routine is to look through a couple news feeds, one from Bing, one from Google, and a slate of generally conservative media sites just to see what insanity I'm being asked to believe on that particular day. Some of that insanity grabs my attention to the point that I says to myself, I says, I says... I need to tell you guys about this one. And here we are yet again. All that said, I did not wake up this morning with the thought, man, do I want to talk about menstruation today. But found on MSN.com headline, Council accused of mansplaining menstruation after appointing man as period dignity officer. This article is like one of those pictures where you're asked to find all of the things wrong. I mean, it's the gift that keeps on giving here. Now, before I go any further, I feel I should clarify something for, you know, the ladies. Mansplaining is a shortened, mashed-together form of man-explaining. It's a term with negative connotations saying that men feel the need to explain things to women because they believe that women just don't generally get it. Now that I've clarified that, we can go on. Side note, all hate mail can be sent to 1313 Mockingbird Lane, Mockingbird Heights, California. Dundee, Scotland is Scotland's fourth largest city. And so you know where we're at. It's right on the north coast of the Firth of Tay. So now that we're all oriented correctly, we can go on. The Scottish National Party apparently is the controlling political party in Dundee at this time. Their headquarters is right there on Old Glamis Road, and I, I, I give you their phone number, but I think their site has a typo. It just appears to be a jumble of numbers. I, 
I'm sure they'll get that corrected soon. Without digging into their beliefs too deeply, it appears, and I reserve the right to be grossly incorrect here, it appears that they're primarily focused on Scotland breaking away from the UK and becoming independent. And that's, that's really kind of it. They seem to have a mix of conservative, moderate, and liberal members, and their policies are kind of all over the place, at least from what I've read. They almost seem what maybe I'd call libertarian from what I read, but, but like I said, I, I didn't dig very deeply, so I might be mistaken. From what I found, I think this is a fairly accurate, albeit brief, assessment. So with that, let's talk about periods. A phrase I guess I'd never, never thought I'd just launch out and say to the public at large, but again, here we are. So apparently, Jason Grant, a former personal trainer... And although I saw no biologist credentials anywhere in this article, allegedly a male, was appointed to the coveted office of period dignity officer. Now, although we all know at this point that, that all of the 4,956 genders can apparently have Aunt Flo come for a visit, various individuals of, I'm assuming, Dundee and or Scottish importance have come out and stated that they believe it would be better if a woman, again, not a single biologist quoted in this article, were to be appointed to such a prestigious office. One of the parliamentary leaders, Ian Blackford, expressed his opinion, as if a man's opinion matters, that he thought it would be far better if a woman occupied the role, while Baroness Fox of Buckley said that this is peak gender idiocy. <laughs> I like that one. Martina Navratilova, yes, the lesbian Prague Czechoslovakian-born former professional tennis player, said that this is, quote, effing ridiculous. And I personally can't figure out if the comment... The office, or the fact that a gay Czech chiming in on a seemingly random issue in a city in Scotland is more nonsensical. Unfortunately, the announcement of Mr. Not a Woman's appointment sullied a day that should have been a celebration for all bleeders. I'm trying to use the correct term here. When the quote, country's flagship law offering free period products was launched. Undeterred by the trouble he's caused, Mr. Grant said that he was, quote, absolutely buzzing about it. He feels that at least part of his job is to ensure people of any gender know that they can get free, quote, period products whenever they need it. And of course, as we all can agree, this must be done with dignity, absolutely no judgment, no matter who or, or what you are, or what things and stuff you believe you need to stem the Crimson Tide. Author, and soon to be canceled due to her hateful rhetoric, <laughs> just wait for it, Susan Dalgetty said, quote, I wonder if he's ever experienced the horror of a blood-stained dress in public, or the gut-wrenching fear of a missed period. No, didn't think so. It's about making anyone of any gender aware of period products, he says. Jason, I have news for you. Only females menstruate. Any more questions? PMS? Endometriosis? <laughs> you can see the hatefulness, as we all know that menstruators can be any of the 6,254 genders. She went on to say, quote, I don't disagree that boys should be taught more about menstruation, but appointing a bloke as the first period dignity officer is institutionalized mansplaining. Now, 
What does she mean by institutionalized mansplaining? No, seriously, can someone tell me? I literally have no idea what that's supposed to mean. Moving on. The law in question was implemented to combat, wait for it, period poverty. Now, councils and education providers, read that as taxpayers and tuition payers, are legally obliged to provide free tampons and pads for all ovary owners. This was a win by the group promoting it, the, quote, period dignity working group which is made up of representation from the Dundee and Anus <laughs> Angus College and An uh, Angus Council, Dundee City Council, and Perth College. Their goal is that, quote, by changing the culture, encouraging debate, and removing the stigma around periods, we look forward to supporting the delivery of this important work across the region. So, as we have reached the end of the article, how many points of insanity did you find? Is this really, really the, the thing that needs to be addressed right now in any industrialized nation, in any nation at all? I know that as of the last year or two, this concept of period poverty has started randomly cropping up in the news, generally pushed by socialist politicians or organizations that really don't care about making feminine products free. They just kind of want everything to be free. And this is quite simply put, a bit of low-hanging fruit. It's a very good place to start. I mean, what politician wants to be on the record saying, I don't care if they're bleeding all over the place, they can't have a free pad. And once this has started, who are we to say that certain other hygiene products shouldn't be free, male or female, or any of the 15,314 genders, animal, vegetable, or mineral? Then what about certain meds? Then all meds. What about clothes, food, shelter? Dan, you say, that's just silly. It would never lead to that. Well, hogwash. Every time those of us on the conservative side of the political spectrum bring out the slippery slope argument, we're tisk-tisked, and every time we're right. That's one of the largest differences between liberals and conservatives. Liberals are in lockstep with their long-term plans, and conservatives are morons. Or at least the leaders we elect generally are, which, what does that make us? Speaking in very general terms. Present company accepted, of course. The broader issue, though, at least in my mind, is why is menstruation and feminine hygiene being thrust in the faces of everyone? When has this ever been an undignified, stigmatized thing? Is there literally stigma to having a period? Is there literal judgment? <laughs> oh man, you're seriously having your period? What evil hath thou committed that thou hast angered the gods so as to provoke them to enact their vengeance upon thee and causeth thou to hemorrhage thusly? The Mosaic or Levitical law had a period, no pun intended, of time where a woman on her period was unclean. Of course, there were a large number of things that would make a person unclean. So it's not like that one specific thing was singled out. And the law was given by God, the creator of both women, and I think he would easily pass the biologist certification test, and the fertility cycle, including the menstruation portion. Yes, it's been the topic of various forms of humor, some of it tasteless, but so have many things that people do or deal with, as people are kind of funny, we're definitely kind of gross, and humor is a good way to deal with anything that's uncomfortable at all. What we're seeing, though, is, I believe, a direct result of the feminist movement, which generally is anti-biblical and 
anti-feminine. The feminist movement should be a movement to protect women and their right to be women, to be feminine. But as it turns out, that movement is literally interested in nothing else but to make women into men. I don't believe that a woman should be unable to drive or vote or own stuff. I don't believe a woman should be forced to remain barefoot and pregnant, relegated to cooking, cleaning, baby raising, and man-pleasing for her life, and then eventually sweet, sweet death. But I do believe that if a woman has no interest in working outside the home and having children and being the best stay-at-home mom possible in cooking and cleaning and caring for her home and her family, she should have the right to do so. In fact, the woman that does this should be applauded for taking on a generally thankless task. The biblical order was for a woman to be the nurturer, the one to tend to family and home, while the man was set up to work, to provide, to protect. Unfortunately, the feminist movement, the liberal ideology, and even the LGBT, especially the T movement, is doing everything they can to erase girls and women from society. If they can't get them to mutilate their bodies inside and out, they want to shame them and erase them from anything feminine. This is nothing but satanic to its core. Now, admittedly, this is my opinion, but this is also my podcast, so you're going to get some or, or a lot of that. I believe that the normalization, the mainstreaming of the public discussion of menstruation has more to do with just making women one of the guys. Guys are gross, right? They burp, they fart, they get pretty shaggy and unkempt. They talk about bodily functions. They have stains on their shirts. They generally have stains on their shirt and talk about bodily functions while, you know, functioning bodily. Guys in general are kind of crude. Now, should we be... Look, that's a different discussion, but I would be comfortable saying that we've always been more that way than women have. As a single guy, I can tell you that trying to find a woman that is proud and confident to be a woman is hard to find these days. They seem to want to be just one of the guys. Maybe I'm the odd one, but I don't want a buddy for a partner. I would like to have a woman, one that thinks and acts like a woman. And before you say that I'm being sexist, let me just point out, you're wrong. When you look at how the Bible describes women, they can be strong and brave and smart, and yet still feminine. Today we're pushing so hard on women to just be men, we're losing what's so special about women, about the differences between the sexes. Maybe it's just me and my jaded, skeptical mind, but when I read an article like this, I absolutely find humor in it. I roll my eyes and marvel at the stupidity of it, but I tend to try to look deeper. What exactly is the end goal here? Because the end goal is never what they tell you the end goal is. And in this case, there is no doubt in my mind that their goals are to continue the push to destroy femininity on the psychological, emotional side, and to open the door to socialism just that much more on the socioeconomic side. Now, as Christian men and women, you know, all the available gender choices, we must not lose sight of masculinity and femininity. We should exhibit those in who we are. We should be teaching and modeling it for our kids, and as much as possible, we need to be looking deeper into and pushing back on initiatives and agendas that are trying to destroy what God created. Man, no matter what we do, cannot improve on the God-created order. We literally can only make it worse, and we're very, very good at doing that. So stand up for who you are, for who you were created as. Teach your kids to be proud of who God created them to be. As Romans 12, 1-2 says, 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are not of this world, so although we are in this world, we are not to be like the world. Walk around with your eyes wide open. Be on the lookout for the schemes of the devil hidden in plain sight. And fight back spiritually, for sure, and through whatever form of legal course of action you can take. Because God never created us to all be men. Public education. One of the keystones of this American experiment, dare I say, the backbone to the founding of this great nation. The ability of the federal government to ensure that all children are taught the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, and history, social studies, science, maybe something about health, definitely all about puberty and sex, possibly something shop or home ec related, that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, and so the list goes, the foresight of the founding fathers to place into the Constitution the mandated creation of the Department of Education was so forward-thinking... Wait, are, are you serious? Okay, then, then when? 1980? That's less than 45 years ago. Okay, well, breaking news, most of you probably didn't know this, which is why I, your well-informed host, felt I should bring this to your attention. The Department of Education was actually created through the Department of Education Organization Act, a cleverly named act if I do say so myself, signed into law on October 17, 1979, by who can now be labeled the second worst president of our country's history, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy thanks you, Joe. The department was created and put into effect on May 4th of 1980, and wow, have they been uh, from the government and here to help ever since. But as time goes on and progress marches steadily forward, sometimes, as Peter Brady of the Brady Bunch so eloquently said, And change we must. And isn't change always for the better? Can I get an amen or, or something? So the three R's, of course, must be updated to better reflect the educational system we find ourselves in today. I think we can all agree that the three R's are now better represented as grooming, propaganda, and indoctrination. And before you complain, just keep in mind that apparently the only qualification for the original three R's was that they had R somewhere in them. And you'll find that all these contain an R. Go ahead, check. Plus, I'm sure that Common Core Language Arts is right around the corner, and I feel that I'm right. So don't judge me. Unfortunately, not all are as enlightened as you and I. And let's be honest, that's sad. And they should probably be destroyed and the schools burned down in a mostly peaceful way, of course. Found from CNN, found on MSN.com, headline, Wisconsin Public School District affirms ban on teachers displaying pride materials or identifying their pronouns in emails. And that's all. I, I don't think I need to go any further. You can fully understand the hatred, the homophobia, the separation of church and state wall busting of the clearly deep red, likely Southern Baptist theocratic handmaid's tale state of Wisconsin. 
Oh, come on, are you serious? Again? Uh-huh. Turns out Wisconsin, just barely and totally legitimately, how dare you question that, went for Biden in 2020, voted in five Republican and three Democrat representatives. And moving back to the 2018 election, they reelected the gay Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin, and they elected the Democratic fossil Tony Evers as governor. So as much as I claim Wisconsin is my home state, not by birth, but that's where I lived nearly my entire life until I graduated college, and as much as I love Wisconsin, find it to be a very beautiful state, it is far, far from being a Christian, conservative stronghold. Although, maybe we'll see things take a turn for the better in the next election cycle. So that being said, let's take a quick dive into this totally unbiased article from CNN. So apparently a ban had been put in place that barred teachers from displaying pride materials. And not the sin of pride, but the pride one feels from the sin of being gay, from writing their pronouns and their email signatures, among other restrictions on educators in the Wisconsin Public School District of Waukesha County. The other restrictions hardly seem worth mentioning, as they pale in comparison to the level of literal violence that I've already mentioned, but out of a simple desire to allay any curiosity, the other restrictions are on displays of, quote, partisan politics, sectarian religious views, or selfish propaganda. The superintendent, Stephen Plum, who is probably, along with his family, being mostly peacefully threatened at this very moment, said, quote, we're in a world where politics are heightened and it puts people in uncomfortable positions. Can you even stomach the hate, the, the vitriol, the homophobia, and probably transphobia and other obias dripping from his filthy mouth? What a monster this man is, if that is how them identifies. But how could I ever know, since Z can't put it in they's emails? <clears throat> This hate-fueled, clearly Christian fundamentalist, right-wing, probably unconstitutional rule also prohibits teachers from putting up signs and banners like Make America Great Again or Black Lives Matter. Ignore that first one. Why does he hate black people? That's all I want to know. This doesn't apply to small things, like a cross necklace, he said, or I'm just assuming probably an aborted fetus charm bracelet. And it didn't apply to students, just the teachers and the staff. So a board meeting was held to revisit this phobic policy, and as CNN says, quote, most of the people who spoke, including several students, opposed the policy. Ha! Well, I'm sure that CNN not reporting the exact numbers it spoke for and against, and simply generalizing it as most, means the same as nearly all. Only one Bible-clutching old fuddy-duddy grandma was for the rule. That would be my guess. Not that most could even possibly mean that, you know, one more person spoke against it as opposed to those who spoke for the policy. They quoted an alleged queer student. Now, I'd probably call her, you know, confused, propagandized, indoctrinated, and groomed, but they went with queer. Abigail was her name, and they quoted her as saying, quote, I know people who cannot come out to their parents. They aren't accepted at home, so they look for acceptance at school. But now, that acceptance is slowly fading away. Well, as we all know, parents are morons. Teachers? <laughs> they are where it's at. 
Two other students apparently started a petition, which, good for them. I mean, nobody really cares, but good for them. I remember back in my high school, we once staged a sit-in to protest the firing of a teacher. They let us sit on the bleachers for maybe an hour or so, then sent us back to class, fired the teacher, and life went on. But sure, maybe this petition will, you know, be the, the catalyst for change. One of those students said that when you walk into the school and see a rainbow flag, you feel safe and supported, finally. To which I'd say, do you feel unsafe when you walk into buildings literally all around the state, country, and world that aren't displaying a rainbow flag? I don't require a flag with a clear male and a clear female doing the hibbity-dibbity to make me feel safe in my heterosexualness, why is this required for her? The other petitioning student said that this policy is, quote, setting students up for academic and society-based failure and affecting the community. To which I'd like to congratulate likely the mom, as statistically the moms are the ones pushing their children to be gay or trans, for writing out a statement for her petitioning student to give to the press. Oh, before you call me out as being someone who's mom bashing, the dads are responsible for their home, whether they want to be or not, whether they're there or not, and dads these days are consistently too spineless to speak up and take control of the home. One school board member said that by doing this, it's showing the students that they don't support all of them. To which I'd have to ask, Mr. Jim Romanowski, did you read the policy because it didn't restrict the students? So what the heck are you even talking about? Another board member, Kelly Brown, said that she's had 80% of her calls from the community in support of the policy, so she's fine with it being in place. <laughs> Why do you hate 20% of the community, Kelly? This public support really isn't shocking since Waukesha County voted about two-thirds Republican in both of the last two elections, so the, the county in general is a conservative county. So look, I'm not going to go all theological with this review. I have a different direction that I feel I must take. The bottom line is that the Bible is very clear. Homosexuality is a sin. We are all created by God in his image, as we're supposed to be, and transitioning to something else is a sin against your body, your mind, and God's creation. Indoctrinating children with your flags, your pronouns, your so-called safe spaces, which are unbelievably unsafe for a child, is a sin, as we are called to protect, not confuse, or mutilate children. There is literally no ambiguity that posting your propaganda is nothing but grooming indoctrination and a blatant display of your own insecurity and the internal conflict you struggle with because of your life choice that clearly is at odds with everything you absolutely know to be true. You simply want as many people as possible and using, using children is just fine with you to affirm you in your life choices. Misery loves company. I hope I wasn't unclear. What I want to focus on is the sinister nature of public schools. Now, let me preface this by saying there are a lot of wonderful teachers, saved and unsaved, that truly want children to learn and thrive in a safe location without bringing in all of the outside world. They believe that their job is to teach and to assist the child as much as possible within very clear boundaries of teacher and student. I would say the same for some of those on staff, in the administrative arena, and the school boards. I'd also say that it appears those teachers are being systematically replaced by woke, agenda-driven propagandists 
that don't care about teaching children as much as they do indoctrinating them to unquestioningly think like they think, so they can continue to be little protesters and freedom fighters for all things depraved and degenerate. They don't care about these kids any farther than they can use them for their own devices. This is by design. In 1956, Russia's communist leader, Nikita Khrushchev, said, quote, We will take America without firing a shot. We can't expect the American people to jump from capitalism to communism, but we can assist their elected leaders in giving them small doses of socialism until they awaken one day to find that they have communism. We do not have to invade the U.S. We will destroy you from within. Seven years later, on January 10, 1963, Congressman Albert S. Herlong Jr. of Florida read a list of 45 communist goals into the congressional record taken from the book The Naked Communist. This is a pretty interesting list, a list that has or is mostly coming true as we slide from a representative republic to a democracy to socialism and eventually communism. We're well on that path right now. But pertinent to this conversation is number 32, which reads, quote, support any socialist movement to give centralized control over any part of the culture, education, social agencies, welfare programs, mental health clinics, etc. Well, in 1980, we enacted centralized control over the education of our children with the creation of the Department of Education. Interestingly, number 26 on the list reads, quote, present homosexuality, degeneracy, and promiscuity as normal, natural, and healthy. And now we see that number 32 has adopted number 26 to no longer indoctrinate our adult population, but to push children to be gay, and that's not really good enough. We now have doctors advocating the removal of penises, breasts, uteruses, and ovaries, of children, because that's the only way to keep them safe. It's sickening. I can't lay all the blame on the Department of Ed, but centralizing our education has done nothing good. It has not protected our children. It has not improved the education of our children. The best mark it could get in any realistic audit is that it was neutral in some areas, as in it didn't harm them, probably by accident, to be honest, but that's about it. In fact, the concept of public school is actually a communist invention. We clearly had public-like schools in the past, if by public you mean a single teacher that would educate kids for multiple families in the community, but a centrally controlled system that enacts control over what will and won't be taught, what agenda will be pushed, how money will be spent, etc., is a communist system. You can look up the history of public education, but looking at the U.S. Communist Party website today, cpusa.org, we find a statement on public education. Quote, public education represents one of the major achievements of the historic struggles of American workers and their allies. The courageous efforts of African Americans during and after Reconstruction and since then and of organized labor throughout the period of the Industrial Revolution to secure quality education for the children of working Americans resulted in the establishment of public schools throughout the country. Public schools have provided opportunities to the children of American workers to improve their life opportunities that would otherwise have been denied them. The fact that approximately 90% of school-aged children in our country attend public schools provides evidence of the significance of this achievement. 
I'd say that if the communists are giddy about our public education system, maybe we, you know, the non-communists, should evaluate what we're doing. They go on to say that it's failing, though, which is, you know, it's very sad, as it's just woefully underfunded. When looking at the numbers, how much do you think is spent on public education every year in the United States? It turns out it's about $613 billion annually. This equates to an average of about $12,500 per student per year. So equating that to a K-12 student career, that's $162,500 per student. How much does it really take to teach students the basics of education? Now, if you dig into this a bit, you find that the Federal Department of Education has 4,067 employees with a top salary of $203,500 and an average salary of $126,055. So, out of the $613 billion, $513 million is spent on the salaries of the federal employees that haven't actually done anything to better the education of our kids. You can look at about any site you want, look at about any measurement you want, and they all agree to varying degrees. Test scores are dropping. Proficiency is dropping. The SAT has been dumbed down a couple times in order to keep the scores up. The ACT is no longer a single test. Now you can take it many times and take a super score, your best showing in each section for as many times as you want to pay to take the test. This would be hilarious if... It was an enemy country, such as Russia or China, but it's not funny when it's us. The good thing is, it's not advertised. It's not reported on. It's just ignored. The bad thing is, we won't be able to hide the growing deficiencies for long. It used to be that teachers thought, planned, studied, and then taught. Now they're told what to teach, and except for an increasingly rare exception, they're nothing more than a talking head at this point, just regurgitating material. Look at this recent pandemic, as it's fresh in all of our minds. How many doctors just regurgitated this medicine that's always been safe is clearly unsafe, and this brand new, hastily concocted, barely tested chemical that's not a vax is totally safe and effective? Because that's what the CDC, or the NIH, told them to say. How many doctors actually researched, actually assessed the symptoms, diagnosed the specific problems, and prescribed various treatments to treat the actual symptoms. How many other things are doctors doing this with? And this is why in the not-too-distant future, a good chunk of our medical diagnoses will be done by computers, by artificial intelligence, as doctors are more and more becoming nothing but middlemen, sorry, middle persons, relating information from the databases of the federal agencies to the patient. We're quickly running out of fingers to put in the ever-increasing cracks in the dam, and it starts with education. So what do we do? I'm not saying that we should eliminate the Department of Education. I'm just saying that we don't have a use for them to be in existence anymore. And I'd love to be able to offer every single employee there the opportunity to discover new career paths. In having this conversation with a variety of people, some being teachers, the look of shock and horror is pretty much universal. Whatever would we do if we eliminated that agency? I mean, I don't know, succeed? This department has only been in existence since 1980, as I said before. What did we do before then? I wasn't in school prior to that. I was barely alive prior to that. But from what I can tell, 
we declared our freedom, industrialized the world, and became the global superpower in military and economic strength, as well as developed the longest-running constitution in the history of the world, fought against our own countrymen to end slavery, we're the most culturally diverse nation in the world, we've single-handedly led the way to bringing the third world nations out of poverty, as displayed by obesity being a much larger cause of death around the world than starvation, which had never been the case in all of history. We also stepped in and ended two world wars. We put a man on the moon from scratch in under a decade, and the list goes on. We did all these things without the help of the Department of Education. It may be a little tricky for a few years, but I kind of think we could figure it out on a state and county level without the help of unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. <laughs> helping us. My idea and clearly this would need to be fleshed out, you know, just a tick, would be to have all private schools, with the counties and states creating their own very general benchmarks to track progress. This would create competition in the states to be the state to go to to get your best and brightest. Parents should be responsible for their child's cost of education, and getting away from a federally controlled system would allow us to give better education, pay the teachers more, for an overall lower bill. Additionally, I've thought that we let companies sponsor schools. And I don't really care if we have something like math brought to you by Mountain Dew or something like that. Kids are subjected to advertisements almost constantly, and having sponsorships in school would pretty much be white noise at this point. And by having big-hitting sponsorships, the cost of education per student would go down, at least from the parents' perspective. And at a tax bill of $613 billion, with about 143 million taxpayers, if that money was evenly distributed, and no, I know it wouldn't be, but as a thought exercise, that would be an average of about $4,300 per taxpayer, so for a married couple, $8,600, that they'd have that they could use toward paying for that education. Finally, I've thought that by making the schools a for-profit business with sponsorships, we'd remove mandatory districts, 100% open school choice, even across state borders. Each school could bus if they wanted, that would be on them, but if a parent wanted to drive their child 100 miles to the best school they can get them to, well, that's up to the parent. This would allow capitalism to kick in. If the school in your area is garbage, it'll either change or go out of business. The schools offering the best bang for the buck would thrive. Yes, I know, a lot of but what abouts in my idea, but come on, if nothing else, that should illustrate that there are clearly much better systems that we could develop as opposed to relegating ourselves to a communist model controlled by the unelected bureaucrats who care more about political agenda, their definition of diversity, equity, and inclusion, indoctrination, and their salary and position, as opposed to the actual education of our children. Unfortunately, we need to get the right people in power as the president and in the Senate and House, and I'm not saying just the majority, I'm saying the right people in the majority to ever admit that this communist system has failed and needs to be eliminated. In the meantime, most of us, me included, will continue using public education for our kids. Some of you have your kids at home or in private schools, and that's great, but most of us are using the public school system. We must stay informed as to what they're being taught, what their friends are saying, what the teachers are pushing, 
what direction the school board is setting, etc. We must stay involved at whatever degree is necessary to ensure our kids aren't being groomed by some insecure, woke activist that needs someone to agree with it in them's life choices. And we must not be afraid to stand up to teachers and administrators and to make our voices known in school board meetings when necessary and to, bottom line, protect our kids. I want to engage in a little thought exercise with you. I plan on offering my opinion at the end, but I'll be honest, as I start piecing this review together, I haven't actually settled on my opinion yet. The subject at hand is one of law, faith, politics, and bias, with what I perceive to be a direct conflict between church and state. No, not the separation of them, just the potential conflict between the two worldviews. I would say in many, if not most cases, those of us that are Christians are generally satisfied with following the United States Constitution, and the, for lack of a better term, secular rule of law this country was founded on. We may not like a lot of the direction our country has taken since then, especially as of late, but in general, I feel comfortable claiming that Christians are basically pro-Constitution. But from time to time, we find a potential conflict, or maybe it's just a conflict because of the biases we have, or speaking for myself personally, the biases I have. Found on WSAZ.com headline, West Virginia Governor, colon, Voters Shouldn't Decide Abortion Access Issue. The article starts with the conundrum I find myself in, quote, West Virginia Governor Jim Justice scoffed Monday at a suggestion by Democratic lawmakers to let voters decide whether abortion should continue to be allowed in the state. The Republican governor said the state's abortion law falls under the scrutiny of the legislature and the attorney general. The background of this story is about as simple as it could be, unless you've been living way out in the hills of West Virginia, you know, way, way off the grid. You know that the Supreme Court recently, mercilessly, struck down the nearly 50-year-old ruling that allowed abortion across the country, Roe v. Wade. This effectively forces all females, regardless of age, circumstance, or health, to be continually pregnant, also barefoot, and pop babies out at a rate of no less than once per year. If you, the birthing person, do not fulfill your one baby per year quota, you'll be placed in the stocks in the town center and eventually drawn and quartered. Or at least that's what your totally unbiased, totally objective, totally apolitical corporate media would like you to think. Of course, the reality is that overturning the, legally speaking, poor ruling does nothing for or against abortion at all. It simply means that the states are the entities that have the ability to decide what their state will do on the topic of abortion. As such, we've got a wide range of responses, from full abortion, no matter what, at any point, including birth, to those that have outlawed abortion in all or very nearly all cases and have criminal penalties for those that violate the law. A handful of states recently, relatively speaking, passed so-called trigger laws that would default their state to a specific position on abortion should Roe ever be overturned. Other states have laws on the books, some ranging back many years regarding abortion, that have been just lying dormant, but would kick in and become state law should Roe ever be overturned. And finally, Roe was overturned. So all those states with all those laws now found themselves in control of the abortion debate within their borders. Enter West Virginia. 
West Virginia had a law on their books since 1848, which was actually a Virginia law that stayed enforced in the new state of West Virginia when it split and became a state in 1863. The law, boiled down, basically says that if you contribute to the aborting of a baby, or as they say, quote, destroy her unborn child, then you get three to ten years in the pen for murder. Since that law was never nullified or modified, when Roe was finally overturned, it kicked back in. On July 18th, 24 days after 6-24-22, the day we should all have etched into our memories as the day Roe was finally aborted, activist judge Tara Salango, married to Democrat Ben Salango, a Kanawha County commissioner and lawyer, a mother of two boys, it appears, decided that baby murder was pretty important like all wonderful mothers do, so she placed an injunction on the law, citing that it was just all too confusing with this West Virginia law saying it was illegal to murder babies and this is your penalty, and that West Virginia law saying it was illegal to murder babies with that penalty. And so since she was just too stupid to see the common thread, you know, the illegal to murder babies part, she said we just need to keep murdering babies until someone clarifies it for her apparently smoother than average brain. Now, if it sounds like I'm picking on her, that you'd be correct. But then again, I'm not the one that wants to murder babies. So, you know, I mean, seriously, both laws say it's illegal. The confusion is how much of a penalty there would be but because she has an agenda, she says to keep on slaughtering babies. I mean, how stupid is that? In response, Governor Jim Justice, who I'm no fan of, his COVID response was weak, spineless, and emotionally fear-based, with yet more liberals acting as his COVID advisors. <laughs> Poor show, Jim, as I'm positive he'll hear this. To his credit, he convened a special session of the legislature to clarify the law for poor Judge Tara, who was last seen facing into a corner of her courtroom, running in place and jumping like you see in video games, with no idea how to get herself unstuck. Now keep in mind, Republicans, and I shan't say conservatives here, Republicans hold a super majority in both the House and the Senate of West Virginia. The House quickly passed a bill that would ban abortion with a carve-out for rape, incest, and life of the mother, with the penalty for all parties involved being a felony with up to 10 years of prison time. The Senate took it and quickly removed the bit about doctors who murder the babies being liable. I'm not sure how the actual murderer isn't charged with murder, but that's what our Republican Senate did. The House thankfully, refused to accept that version of the bill, and a few weeks later they still haven't come together to get a bill passed. Meanwhile, baby slaughter is still quasi-legal in West Virginia, a deep red, apparently with blood, state. And this is where the Democrats, frothing at the mouth, jonesing for another baby body to throw on the heap, jumped in and said that the topic of abortion should be put up as a voter initiative and let the people decide if they want abortion legal in the state or not. And this is where Governor Justice, and I quote again, scoffed at the suggestion. He stated that this was a decision that was to be left up to the legislature and the attorney general, with the caveat that if the legislature brings him something he can't sign, and it appears that he is of the conservative pro-life position for the most part, that he will not sign it. But he feels confident they'll figure it out and bring him a good bill to sign into law. 
Side note, in 2018, we voted in the affirmative to place an amendment in the Constitution that says that the state constitution in no way, quote, secures or protects a right to abortion or requires the funding of abortion. It passed, but just barely, by 20,000 votes or a spread of only 3.5 percentage points. The West Virginia Senate Minority Leader Stephen Baldwin, no, not the Christian actor, brother of more famous, and I think borderline psychotic actor Alec, no, this Stephen Baldwin is a West Virginia Democratic Senator who wants to use the same trick all Democrats use, emotion and speed. He said, quote, This is a very important issue. We need a resolution sooner rather than later. The legislature had a chance to act and failed. We should let the people decide. This is a constitutional question, and our Constitution empowers the people decided on the ballot. His hope, I think quite obviously, is that the heightened emotion driven by the lying, bloodthirsty leftist politicians, in coordination with the complicit evil corporate media, combined with doing this fast, like in a few months, would push those crucial few percent over to the dark side of saying abortion should be legal in the state. I'd say he probably has a good chance of being right. As I'll be honest, I've lost a lot of respect for humanity, even those on the right, based on their actions over the last couple of years. People generally aren't who I thought they were. I'm guessing you're probably feeling somewhat the same. So that brings us to our conundrum. In terms of deciding policy, should it be a proposal that's left to the people to decide? Or should it be decided by the legislature alone? And before you answer, let me propose two states to consider. Mississippi, which is the state that brought the case to the Supreme Court that ended up overturning Roe, and California, who I believe has declared itself to be a sanctuary state for abortion, or at least governor-slash-dictator Newsom, wants it to be. And keep in mind, California, only a few years back, put a ballot initiative out to legalize gay marriage. It was voted down by the people three times before the legislature decided they were just going to do it anyway. So, should the people decide, or should the legislature decide? And does it influence your answer if the people or the legislature is more likely to decide the way you want? In my case, I'm a Christian. If you couldn't tell by now, I'm fairly anti-abortion. In fact, I'm farther to the right than even our House of Reps is, as I would not have a carve-out for rape and incest, as I believe that, one, abortion does nothing to lessen the trauma of what has occurred, it only punishes an innocent human by murdering them for something they had nothing to do with, two, I see no benefit to burden the female with murder on top of what she's already experienced, and three, both of those types of cases combined account nationally for well under 1% of abortions. Now, additionally, I wouldn't have a separate law or penalty in the law for abortion. I would just kick an abortion to laws governing homicide. You'd have the murderer, those complicit in murder, accessories to murder, etc., and just utilize the penalties that are already on the books for murder, since that's what it is. How could it be any more simple? So, as a Christian, looking at our legislature, statements by our governor, and the close abortion vote in 2018, fickleness of people and lost in trust of humanity, I'd want the legislature to decide this one. But, if I was in California, knowing the evil that runs that state, I could easily say that the people must decide. 
and then cross all fingers and toes and maybe even resort to prayer. That's a joke. That the people will decide life is actually important. But as you can see, this is an inconsistent position. The Bible is clear that all humans are created in the image of God, that God knits us together, that we are all made exactly how God planned, and that murder is murder. We know from science that at the millisecond of conception, a unique individual with its own distinct DNA code has been created. We know from logic and reason that regardless of the size, the level of development, the environment of residence, or the degree of dependence, remember the sled argument, a human is no more or less of a human. We also know that we are supposed to be in subjection to the governing authorities as they've been instituted by God. That means all, the good or the bad, and they're in power for a purpose that only God may understand at the time. So, here's the question. Should my position be inconsistent in the world, but be consistent with Scripture telling me that a baby is a human, regardless of which end of the birth canal he or she resides, and that murder is murder? Or should my position be consistent that we are under subjection to the authorities in power and we should let them decide such matters based on our system of government? Now that I've laid it out there, do you find that you have the same inconsistent worldview? And what are your thoughts on this conflict? Maybe this is a good point to pause the podcast and get some weird looks from coworkers or other drivers as you clearly argue with yourself to decide where you stand. And now, as I've been laying this out, I think I know the position I need to take, knowing that, in the past, I've definitely been inconsistent based on my biases. But in the future, I'm sure I'll find myself inconsistent again, although now maybe I'll put more thought into it. Hopefully. So here we go. My opinion. We live within the governmental structure of a representative republic. We do not live in a democracy as much as the leftists want to convince you that we do. As such, we the people vote in individuals to represent our views and make laws accordingly as opposed to a democracy where we would all vote on every single issue. The system we live in is less than perfect due to voting irregularities, gerrymandering, lobbying, and dishonest politicians, but this is the system we've been given and that we've used for nearly 250 years. As such, I'd have to say that I side with Governor Justice on this. This should be left to the legislature to send a bill to the governor's desk that represents the will of the majority, which is represented by the legislators in power. Due to the issues I just stated, from time to time, the system will fail, and they will not represent those that elected them. That is when we, the people, must work within the system we have and vote them out, or even recall or impeach and replace them if possible, at the earliest opportunity. The fact that we don't do that nearly as often as we should just says to me that we get exactly what we deserve, that God has instituted the rulers we have as punishment, as a lesson that we should learn from, although clearly we rarely do. This means that there will be times, albeit rare, that the representatives will represent their agenda rather than the people, as was the case in California regarding gay marriage. That's an unfortunate result of the system, of dishonesty, of human sin. If we find that we live somewhere that consistently misrepresents our worldview, as in if I were living in California, it would then force me to decide 
If I stay and continue to fight for a worldview that conflicts with the majority of the state? Or do I self-separate and go somewhere I feel more closely represents me? And that choice is never as easy as stating that choice. Fortunately, this is temporary. There will come a day when, for Christians, our spiritual representative will also be our political representative, and we will live under a perfect theocracy with perfect laws, and our free will desire, for whatever definition you want to put on that, will be to not rebel against our master, our king, our savior. So, regardless of this temporary situation we find ourselves in, perfection is coming, and we can surely find some solace in knowing that. So, what do you think? What side of the argument would you fall on? Are you consistently inconsistent? Or are you consistent in a worldview accepting the potential consequences? If nothing else, hopefully this causes you to stop and think why you react to a news story the way you do. Hopefully it makes me stop and think. And now, while this is fresh in your mind, go ask someone else this question and enjoy yourself as you watch their brain melt right in front of you. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. God bless.